Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. everyone welcome to stick to wrestling my name is john mcadam this is the stick to wrestling podcast where if you give us 60 minutes perhaps indeed we'll give you a raw bone and wicked good podcast uh, Stick to Wrestling primarily focuses on wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I say that every week, and every week we're in the 80s. Here we go again. Before I get rolling, I want to thank uh, Matt O'Donnell, David Reed, David McCoy, Edwin Edwards, and Joshua Jabkuga. I hope I'm saying that right. Um... If you for donating to the Stick to Wrestling podcast, it is a free podcast. It is ad free. If we don't get donations, we're not getting anything. And I would do it for free because I enjoy it. But if you want to say thank you, uh, just uh, PayPal Pro Wrestling Archives at Gmail dot com. Before I bring in Steve to discuss our Facebook group, um, it, it appears my Twitter is dead. Steve, my Twitter is dead. How are you, Steve? <laughs> How are you able to communicate with the world? This is an outrage. <laughs> this, this is an outrage, but I, I somehow got locked out of my Twitter account. I am trying to put in a, a password. I don't have the correct password. I signed up literally in 2009 with an email address that I no longer use, so I can't get that open anymore. So it looks like I might be putting up a new Twitter account in like 2024 or something if I can't get this one open. So if you're messaging me by Twitter or you're looking for my funny banter on Twitter, that's why you haven't heard it in a long time. But Steve, tell everyone, please, about the Stick to Wrestling Facebook group. Well, thank you, John. Uh, actually, we're getting a lot of great feedback on the most recent episode with Lance Peterson about world class. I think uh, both of you guys did a great, great job. I was thoroughly entertained, and uh, as were our Facebook group. Uh, Brendan James posted a photo of the Ric Flair versus Bob Backlund match from the Omni and was, was uh, opining that this match and maybe the entire card will see the light of day someday on Peacock from the Omni. We can only hope. I mean, supposedly the people at Peacock are... Uh, kind of down on the classic footage because, I mean, they're the ones with the numbers. They say no one watches it. Um, I mean, you know, that's the words they use. No one watches that old crap. And I watch it, but, you know, me watching it and a couple of people who listen to Stick to Wrestling watching it, you know, just doesn't do the trick. So I... I I don't. Rem- I'm not really hopeful for that. I'm not hopeful that you know the 1976 Shea Stadium show is ever going to come to light, or the 82 Omni show, and that kind of sucks. But one thing that has come to light, Steve, is Starcade '83. Yeah. You know, I was surprised, John, uh, when when you uh, asked me about doing this show. I went back and, and looked at a lot of the history of Stick to Wrestling, and I'm shocked that this topic has never come up before. Uh Starcade '83. I don't think it, I don't think you've ever done a show on it before. I've been involved. In it. No, it's, it's never been a topic. No, it's never. I mean, I think we did a quick go round of like you know the first four Starcades, you know, talking about each one for like fifteen minutes. But we've never done a deep dive on this show. And when this podcast comes out on Friday, November twenty fourth, it will be the literally the fortieth anniversary to the day of Starcade eighty three. 
Wow. Wow. And, and I, I must admit, this is the first time I had ever seen the entire card. And uh, and it really uh, it was a feast for the eyes. I mean, it, it definitely uh, put a lot of uh, you know thoughts about old time wrestling and what we've been through ever since. Uh, it, it definitely felt like the, the beginning of a new age uh, watching this card. Well, I have a lot to say about that. I mean, first of all, the access we have... I mean, yeah, we don't have the 82 Omni card with Backlund versus Flair. We don't have the 76 Shea Stadium show, but we've got a lot. I mean, <laughs> you know, we really do. And I remember uh, when I first started getting into tape trading in early 1987, someone sent me their list. And the first thing I wanted to see was Starcade 83. And I paid $30 in 1987 money for that for that VHS tape, <laughs> that bootleg VHS tape that someone uh, got off the satellite. And that's $81.20 of 19, uh, 2023 money. It, it, at the time, did you feel it was a it was a good investment? It definitely was a good investment because I turned around and sold it myself. <laughs> so <laughs> here I am crying about thirty dollars, you know, thirty six years ago, and you know, but I'm I'm just saying, you know, that I I couldn't believe I finally had access to this card. It was you know almost a dream come true, ladies and gentlemen. Three and a half years later, I finally got to see Starcade '83, and now you can just you know plug it in and watch it anytime you want. Well, one one thing that uh, in doing the research that I found out, I, I saw an interview with Jerry Briscoe, and uh, yeah, Briscoe was on this card, and of course, sh- sh- soon uh, about six months later, he was going to join uh, WWF. Uh, it's interesting to hear his perspective since he was there at the card. He said that the original plan for Starcade was to uh, make it as accessible as, say, the first WrestleMania was, that it would be in like multiple closed circuit locations throughout the entire United States. But uh, it, from what he said in his comments, I guess Crockett found out soon they just didn't have the infrastructure or the wherewithal to put a, a huge undertaking like that together. And then it just ended up being in a, a handful of other closed circuit locations around the Carolinas. And they did uh, gross another uh, 30,000 fans in attendance uh, of viewing the card uh, live on the closed circuit. But it definitely didn't uh, get up there with like a WrestleMania as far as broad coverage to the United States. I mean, I I, I, I want to say, oh, look, I love, I love Gerald Briscoe. Great guy. I just don't don't see that idea of having it go all around the United States. I mean, if you had it in here in Nashua, New Hampshire or Boston, Massachusetts, no one would have gone to see it except like me and two of my friends. I mean, we didn't get the television. So I mean, I don't even know how we could learn about, you know, the event being available, okay? And like I said, we don't get the TV. We don't know what the Ric Flair versus Harley Race storyline is. Um, even on WTBS, and I've, I've mentioned this before, Ole Anderson uh, and the Georgia promotion, I think they mentioned that Harley Race had won the NWA title once when they were bringing him in uh, bringing Harley Race in like four months after he won the title, and my my uh, understanding is that he no showed the card in, in in Atlanta, and he was never mentioned again. The NWA title was never mentioned again until the Saturday after Starcade, where Ric Flair shows up with the belt. So, not basically, what I'm saying is that this is something that. I think if Ole Anderson and Jim Crockett had worked together on, it might have been a big deal because Ole had that national out- outlet, but Crockett didn't. 
Right, right. And and, uh, and I would say that, I mean, the card, I think there were two major goals of this card. Uh, you know, what were they trying to accomplish? I think, uh, uh, first and foremost, they were, wanted to reestablish Ric Flair as the NWA champion. And this was kind of his coming out party. I mean, they call it a flair for the gold. I think anyone but the most uh, densest person would have thought, yeah, the title is going to change on this card. And I think the other thing, you know, the... Uh, Crockett family had always had their probably their biggest show of the year on Thanksgiving each year, and this was their way of saying, "Hey, uh, we, we we've always done this, but we're going to try it on a grander scale." I mean, there's been other supercards in other territories, but let's try something that's never been uh, done before, at least never been done in the Carolinas, and let's do this on a grander scale. And they accomplished it. They did, and this all came from the uh, the show that had a uh, Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood against uh, Sar. And Slaughter and uh, Don Kernodal in the cage, the, the final conflict where they mm-hmm. had to turn away thousands of fans. And it, my understanding is it, it created a major traffic jam in Greensboro on the, on the freeways because people were trying to get to the show and there was no parking and no tickets, etc. So Crockett said, hey, instead of turning these fans away, why not have the event available on closed circuit TV? And I think, you know, that was a very smart thing. Another smart thing is that they, you know, people, I've read comments that Starcade 83 was the original supercar. Now, kind of like, you know, what? Look through history. <laughs> there are, you know, scores of other supercars. But this one stood out because it became this one promotions super bowl for like six years and then the wwf copied it and wrestlemania became their super bowl about a year and a half later and you know and to me that's a big deal for a promotion to have you know your own super bowl your own world series this one big event that occurs annually and wcw got away from that in 1989 and they kind of you know yeah we have like four or five super bowls a year no that's not how it works (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that, that's very true. And, and I would say the way that this card was put together or built, I mean, we've, t- we've talked about it on this show before. Uh, I mean, in one of the early, early um, uh, trying to put the card together, there was a match with uh, Orton and Slater against uh, Wahoo and Hulk Hogan. So I think all along their plan was to have you know, not only the top stars of the Carolinas, probably in the top spots on the card, but let's bring in other stars from other parts of the country. And I think because of uh, Dusty's relationship uh, with the Crockett's and him uh, kind of, uh, I guess he was the one that came up with the name Starcade. They did bring in some Florida stars for the show and, and, and uh, you know, a handful of other stars. And, and it was really, a, you know, as, as we'll discuss, it was really a solid card from top to bottom. Yeah, I mean, when the Florida promotion had the last tangle in Tampa in 1980, you know, they brought in Bob Backlund to defend the WWF championship. When the WWF had their Shea Stadium show, they brought in Tatsumi Fujinami and Antonio Inoki. They also brought in Greg Gagne. So, you know, when you when you're having a show like this, at least in 1983 before all hell broke loose with the national expansion you know it, it made sense to bring in the the top stars from the other promotions i mean you know we we talked about it last week the world class brought in junkyard dog 
Yeah, it, it really, uh, I, I mean, it, I mean, we'll review the card. I mean, in some cases, I think it worked. In some cases, it maybe didn't work, but we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that in detail. Oh, for sure. And another thing I wanted to mention, I didn't go into great, I didn't think about this, like, in, in depth. I mean, about a year ago, I put on my calendar that, you know, yeah, we're doing a Starcade 83 40th anniversary review on Stick to Wrestling. And I didn't think it through, Steve. I would have done this show anyway, but right now there are so many podcasts out there reviewing Starcade 1983. I didn't realize we'd be like one in a, one in a million. <laughs> well, but it, it deserves it, though. It, it it was a unique event. It was like you said before WrestleMania. Uh, it it really gave uh, you know branded this event as the NWA event of the year, and like you said, it stayed that way for about six years. But I think that the Starcade name is really held up and resonated well because people associate that name with the premier event of Jim Crockett or the premier event of the NWA. They also made it a a major event, I think, by just by bringing in Dusty Rhodes, just by having him on screen, and they brought in Gordon Soley to you know announce the the match. And you know, Gordon was a major star; everyone knew who he was. The magazines pushed him hard, so they they went out of their way to you know put a little bit more frosting on the cake. Yeah, yeah, the, the Dusty Rhodes, uh, seeing him on the show, and he appears uh, so many times. I don't know how many times he ended up appearing on the show, but um, it was kind of like seeing, like, you're going to see, uh, you know, Star Trek II, and there's uh, you're, you're seeing the previews for the movies that are going to be out the following year, and you see Return of the Jedi. I guess they figure, you know, if you're here to see wrestling, you're going to want to know about who's going to be wrestling in a year or so from now. I mean, uh, Dusty uh, really wouldn't be in the character. Uh, Carolinas until like middle of 84, but uh, him being on the show and he kept talking about, well, I'm going to face the winner. I mean, it really gave you that foreshadowing of what was going to come in the future of Dusty Rhodes against uh, Ric Flair. It was going to happen. Yeah, and I mean, Dusty was one of the biggest names in the sport. I mean, definitely top five in 1983. And, you know, to have him there, it made it special. It's almost like, you know, having Prince perform at the Super Bowl, that, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I mean, but I, I will say, I mean, in some of those interviews where Dusty was, you know, hyping himself and, you know, he's staying there with a bunch of fans, I mean, it, it to me, he, he kind of wanted to come off like Hulk Hogan, but uh, just couldn't really carry it off. I mean, Dusty's one of the all-time great uh, promos, no doubt about it, but I think he's trying to play the, be the Hulk Hogan of this promotion, and to me, he just isn't cutting it. I mean, I just think uh, lots of charisma, but uh, he did look a little long in the tooth. I thought, I, I thought to so too. I thought you know, Dusty was beginning mm-hmm. to look old right around this point. His his weight wasn't doing him any favors, uh, but he was still you know as soon as he got the book and he got the the national uh, promotion or uh, when Crockett got on WTBS. I mean, Dusty did make himself the Hulk Hogan of, of JCP, no question. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, as as a fan of the uh, NWA and, and watching, uh, um, you know, the Superstation show, I mean, D- Dusty did a great job. I mean, especially those early years, as we've always said, it was around, uh, you know, middle of 87, 88 when he got stale. But uh, 
the fact that he could bring in all this talent, you know, people like the Midnight Express, Rock and Roll Express, uh, Nikita, you know, Magnum. And I mean, what he would do over the next few years is was quite remarkable. He took JCP to new heights they had never been to before. No, and, you know, we've discussed this on the show before. Oh, by the way, I, I, I do need to mention that we haven't done for review purposes in a while, and that hasn't gone away. It's just sometimes difficult to navigate. Like today, we're recording on Monday a podcast that's coming out on Friday, and you know sometimes it's hard to get somebody in here. But I'm, I'm hoping next week I actually have someone specifically in mind to do, to discuss more on Starcade '83. So we'll see if I can get that rolling. But yeah, I mean, it definitely this show came across as a major, major event, <laughs> and I mean, it's just the way wrestling was in 1983. The undercard isn't exactly as strong as a a late 80s WrestleMania. I mean, as someone mentioned in a Starcade 83 review, like you could be a wrestling super fan and not know what the first ever Starcade match was. I would have gotten it, but I would have needed a few minutes to think. It's the Assassins, Jody Hamilton and Hercules Hernandez taking on the team of Bugsy McGraw and Rufus R. Jones. Steve, this just was not much of a match. (laughs) <laughs> well, well, Bugsy was channeling Curly from the Three Stooges, which I don't think is really good for your opening match. Uh, R- Rufus R. Jones, uh, he looked like, you know, like if you were going to have like, uh, <laughs> let's get let's get like a, a special guest wrestler from MLB, and and they decided to pick. Um, like Satchel Paige. Oh. I mean, he he just looks like he was like, you know, should have retired 15 years ago. Uh, I mean, he looks so over the hill. It was in- incredible to me. Uh, but uh, I think he is the father of Slick. Am I correct? I that? believe he is. Uh, that's the rumor that's out there, at least. And Rufus R. Jones, I mean, look, he was a a big deal in the Carolinas for a long time. And they tended to protect guys like that. I mean, Johnny Weaver, for example, was never used as a jobber. They always protected him, even when when he was really old. Same thing with Abe Jacobs. And Rufus R. Jones has kind of fallen into that 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 role at this point. Yeah, and, and say what you will, he was he was super over with the fans, as as was Bugsy, which kind of surprised me. And and they were dominating the match, but uh, you know, one of the assassins just did a schoolboy uh, wrap up of Bugsy, I think, and it was a one, two, three, and the and the assassins walked away with a token of victory. Yes, they did, and uh, you know, it's funny. Th- this promotion had Jimmy Valiant, and Jimmy Valiant, I have been assured by people who grew up watching this promotion, was over like crazy. You could go to a small town in western the western part of North Carolina or a small town in. Virginia, and if if Jimmy Valiant was in the main event, uh, you know, in this small town, in the town gym, that you were going to get a big house, and it was like a big star came came to town. Now, to me, when you've got Bugsy McGraw, you've got Jimmy Valiant Part Two, and and Rufus R. Jones passes as Jimmy Valiant Part Three. You can't, you know, you can't have, you know, that that takes away from Jimmy Valiant. 
I well, that, that's a really good point. I mean, why have like the replica of the same wrestler on the card? But um, I, one thing that was kind of fascinating to me, uh, as far as like looking at the entire card as a whole, um, Dory Funk apparently is the booker for this yes. show, and, and and I'm thinking to myself like. Who who was his inspiration as a booker? And I'm I'm assuming it was probably Dory Senior. I mean, Dory Senior was somebody who uh, taught a lot of the the great bookers to come. Like Eddie Graham learned a lot at the feet of uh, Dory Senior. Um, and and the funny thing too, another guy that Dory has a long history with was Ed Farhat, the original Sheik. And notice on this card of eight matches, there's four bloodbaths in here. So I wonder if Ed Farhat's style of booking and I'll tell you that I remember the first time I watched not this Starcade, but Starcade '85 actually was at my local video store, you know, in 1986, and I watched it. And I was thrilled to watch it, but I was like really taken aback by how much blood there was on that show. <laughs> and there was a lot less on this show, but there was still a ton of blood in this show. And, yeah, I mean, eight, eight matches and four bloodbaths. And, and, you know, I'll get into this uh, when we talk about the main event, but they had a, a sky cam over the ring, and there's blood everywhere on the mat. It's all over the place because, you know, it, it's just been that kind of card. It, it was that was such an iconic shot that over the ring shot of the NWA letters, the two workers, you know, race and flare in the ring, both bloodied, and then all that different, you know, DNA and blood all over the ring. I mean, it's such an iconic shot. And I'm surprised that on this show, even though they used that shot a few times, they never had one shot of like a the whole arena of 16,000 fans like brightly lit. So you could see that there's a huge, huge throng of fans. That's something Vince never would have uh, missed the opportunity to focus on. You know, on. I didn't even realize that, Steve, but you're right. You absolutely want to get that shot of you know the overflow arena because it makes you look major league even though right now jcp doesn't have any real competition in the carolinas or virginia he's about to and you still even if you have no competition you want to get that shot out there yeah yeah i mean i mean this is still wrestling and you know a lot of people felt like wrestling was like you know, third, fourth, fifth rate entertainment. And if they could have shown this huge, huge overflow crowd, that would have only benefited the promotion and benefited wrestling as a whole. I, I really wonder what it would have like. Wrestling was definitely frowned upon here in the Northeast in the late 70s and early 80s. And I, 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 I really think it was just a, a different atmosphere in the Carolinas. It wasn't looked at as so lowbrow by, by most people. I mean, I've talked about it on the show before. I mean, for a long time, I hid being a wrestling fan. Well, well, also, I mean, living in the East Coast, as you you and I both know, I mean, you know, baseball is life. I mean, the Yankees, the Red Sox, uh, there's, I mean, that's that's a, a universe to itself. Then you have football, NHL, NBA, college sports. I mean, in the Carolinas, they didn't have any of that professional sports going on at that time. So other than NASCAR and some college sports that they had, I guess pro wrestling was looked upon as more of a legitimate thing just because there wasn't much else to go you're to. You're right. I mean, you know, south to Atlanta, north to Washington, there was no professional sports. And I've been told by people that, you know, yeah, wrestling was our sport. So, you know, pro wrestling. And, you know, it was that and UNC basketball. 
<laughs> right. So a- after this match, uh, uh, they had one of those uh, cutaways to the crow's nest where Bob Cottle and Gordon Soley were. And, and Bob Cottle definitely put the show over as the greatest wrestling event of all time. He did, and I think you want to push that. And you know what? If I'm a fan in 1983, and and I was, I mean, I followed by the magazines, I mean, this felt like the biggest event in my lifetime. It felt like a bigger event than either Shea Stadium show, which is saying something. And I'm interested, uh, why why did you feel that way, John? Why, Why did you feel it was bigger? I think because the after mags did a really good job hyping it, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, they, mm-hmm. you know, I, I didn't believe every word they said, but I mean, you know, I was 18 years old and I was easily led by, you know, what I read in the magazines and they, they made it seem like, you know, it was, you know, just the biggest event ever, like, you know, a once in a lifetime thing. And then about, you know, a, a year later, I pick up a magazine and it's like, oh yeah, Starcade 84 is coming. And I was like, wow. They're going to do this every year. Well, it's probably the the power of them giving giving it a title too. I mean, as you and I know, those Shea Stadium shows, as big as they were, there never was really a, a title to it. I think you know, years later, decades later, they call it Showdown in Shea, but that was something produced in the two thousands. It, it was. They didn't. You know, it was just another WWF show, except we're holding it at Shea Stadium. And you're right, the the WWF events did not have names. Uh, World class. They had you know their Star Wars show, but. They, you know, that could pop up any time of the year. Um, and Mid-South, when they did the Superdome, it was just a Superdome show. So you didn't have that, you know, calling card, Starcade. And I, I think that helped also put it over the top as, you know, wow, this is, this is something we've re- reached new heights here. Very, very true. And then Tony uh, Tony Atlas, Tony Schiavone hosted a uh, first of the many flair for the gold uh, backstage interviews. And I was really impressed by the job he did. Apparently, this was one of his very first things he ever did in wrestling. It was. And uh, I really liked those segments because it wasn't like... You know, the WWF Survivor Series where everyone is in character acting crazy in front of the camera. It's just, okay, these guys are backstage, they're hanging out, and they're waiting for their match. It, it had a really good vibe to it, and from both ends, the babyface end and, and the heel end. Part of it for me watching it, I felt that uh, it was a little bit too long, like a little bit too... I mean, it felt like uh, like watching the Oscars or watching the telethon, you know, some show with like just a ton of preamble and a ton of. I mean, you got you like to hype it, but some of this backstage stuff just got to be a little too much. I really, felt. for for me, I was fine with it. Um, and I understood when they had the big uh, intermission uh, before the main event. It's like, okay, I understand they're putting up the cage and they they need to kill some time. And at one point, uh, Bar. bar Barbara Cleary, that's her name. She was really good, by yeah. the way. Uh, she was having technical technical difficulties, so Gordon and um, what, what's his name, Bob Cottle, are just killing time in, in front of the mic. And as soon as Barbara Cleary, you know, oh Barbara's ready, Barbara Clary, excuse me. Um, oh Barbara's mic's working. Like Gordon, like stops immediately. Like he's in the middle of expressing a thought, and they just cuts himself off. Okay, let's go to Barbara because like he was clearly <laughs> just killing time. It was I thought it was funny. Oh yeah, abs- absolutely. Uh, then our, our next big match that occurred was. Uh, uh, Scott McGee and uh, Johnny Weaver. Uh, Johnny Weaver, right, against Mark Lewin and Kevin Sullivan. And what what are your thoughts on well, that? When I first read that Sullivan and Lewin 
were on this show, I just figured, managed by Gary Hart, I just figured that, okay, they're going to get a titanic push up here because I accepted, now accepted, Kevin Sullivan as a top star once again because he was covered heavily in the magazines and he got a huge push in Florida. Now, I didn't know how this all worked, so I figured, okay, if he's going to be a huge star in Florida, guess who's also going to be a huge star in the Carolinas? Didn't exactly work out that way no no and i I was really surprised i I looked back on uh, the the wrestling record book and they worked about two weeks worth of matches in the carolinas prior to this match and then after this they were gone uh lewin wouldn't work again until his florida run began uh, about six months later so uh, it was just i think this was just kind of a, a shock uh a shocking angle to put another shock in the card and and put the heat on Gary Hart, who is again one of the co-bookers, uh, one of Dory's assistants, and uh, give him some more heat because he, uh, if you didn't see the match, uh, uh, the the bad guys win the match, and then Gary Hart, for no apparent reason, reaches into his boot, pulls off this thing that kind of looks like a knife, and then uh, uh, Kevin Sullivan gets it and he starts working on um, Scott McGee. And and really, uh, I think he, he basically bladed uh, Scott McGee from ear to ear, and Scott McGee just uh, was a crimson mask and beyond. One of the bloodiest sights I have ever seen in wrestling, and this, this was it was really over the top. And it served no purpose, in my opinion. I mean, Scott McGee was not getting pushed in the Mid-Atlantic area. I don't remember them airing uh, this footage in the in Florida, where you know was McGee's primary home. So, basically, you know, I've said this on the show before. The, the less you use blood, the more effective it is. And to have, you know, a, a relative unknown in this area to, you know, hit her gusher like that for no apparent reason, it's just not good booking. I'm sorry. And, and I thought I thought seeing Mark Lewin do his crazy act, uh, uh, just like one match after seeing Bugsy McGrob do his curly, uh, curly of the Three Stooges act, that, that part was a turnoff to me. I mean... We, you know, we we know wrestling is goofy enough. To try try to make it more believable. Try to make it more real. Don't be like a crazy character. Yeah, and they toned Sullivan and Lewin way way down from what those guys were doing in Florida. And you mm-hmm. can kind of tell, you know, Jim Crockett's like, you know, nope, that's not going to fly here. This is, you know, we're in the Bible Belt. You know, we're not doing a character that you know even alludes to uh, being a, a Satan worshiper. And these guys, they were so toned down that you know. Know, okay, without all that, how are they going to get over? And they they didn't, so they just went home. It looks like. Yeah, I, I think it was just uh, uh, they just did this for, for shock effect. That, that's my opinion. And uh, Scott McGee, after this match, uh, he actually went to work in Portland for a few months. So uh, he he also left and got out of there. So yeah, I mean, basically, I understand that. Look, you have to have an undercard, but you know, just try to have good matches that build up to you know th- that make the card better and build up to your main event, as opposed to having something like this where you know, it, 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 like you said. It, it appeared to have uh, nothing but shock value and nothing substantial behind it, and you should stay away from that in pro wrestling. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and to talk about shock value, our next match is Carlos Colon against Abdullah the Butcher. Well, you know what? I wanted to talk about this post-match. Barbara Cleary interviews a family, and these guys were so Southern. I, I was taken aback by it. <laughs> I mean that you know, in the best way possible, but it almost seemed like a parody. And they traveled 180 miles to be at Starcade, which, you know, kind of impressive. Uh, they're not, you know, terribly talkative, but they're big Ric Flair fans. I can't, Steve, I can't tell you how many times I have traveled more than 180 miles to see a pro wrestling event. And had Starcade been within 180 miles from me, you bet I would have been there. Yeah, and and it was really, a, as we talk about, I mean, a really memorable card and, uh, you know, a lot of legends on this card, the Hall of Famers, and we'll have to, we'll dive right back yeah, into well, it. Yeah, well, we've got another Hall of Famer, Abdullah the Butcher against Carlos Colon. Uh, it was kind of a short nothing match. I think what they're trying to do here is, oh, look, look, we're bringing in the two biggest stars from Puerto Rico. Oh, look, we're bringing in, you know, maybe we're bringing in the top stars from Florida as well. I- I'm guessing here. <laughs> you know, and I know a lot of people get on Monsoon's case uh, when he was calling the Royal Rumble in around, uh, I don't know, it was like 94, 96, when Carlos Colon was on. He, he called him a young man. <laughs> uh, just coincidentally, on this show, uh, Bob Cottle called uh, Colon a young man, <laughs> which is shocking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to say something that I'm not saying it to be a jerk or, you know, for shock value. I'm surprised Abdul the Butcher is still alive. He has not been yeah. doing well for a while. I know he's confined to a wheelchair. He's always had w- weight problems. Like guys who look the way Abdullah the Butcher looked on Thanksgiving night, nineteen eighty-three, tend not to have another forty years left in them. No, absolutely. And and when I was watching this match, one thing I noticed was uh, when Cologne was going to to hit Abdullah on the top of his head, you could watch Abdullah. He would like take his hand, which I guess is where he has his razor blades and he would like kind of slap his head with his own hand and i think he was trying to okay uh, uh, carlos just hit me so i'm going to try to hit my head so i start bleeding and sometimes <laughs> it, it took a little while but eventually it worked but i mean it, it, this match was so primitive and you know it, and it was a, such a short match i mean basically what happened was uh, uh cologne got him in the figure four the referee got knocked down and then hugo savinovich who was never even introduced we didn't know he was there he just runs in the ring, hits Carlos with a blunt object. Uh, Abdullah covers him, and and he wins the match. Yeah, it was kind of a okay. You know, why did you guys even make the trip? Sort of match, to be <laughs> right, honest with you. Right. Uh, but anyway, next up, we've got Dick Slater and Bob Orton Jr. against Wahoo McDaniel and Mark Youngblood. Uh, Steve, I could have told you without any hesitation the day before who was doing the job, who was doing the honors on this night in this match. I really like this match, though. It was a I good mean, match. I, I felt, yeah, I, I felt that this match was like the most um, just straightforward wrestling match without anything else added in. And uh, it told a really good story. I mean, uh, uh, Orton was just punishing uh, Youngblood throughout the match. I mean, he hit him with a bunch of uh, uh, backbreaker moves. He threw him into the fence that surrounded the ring, hurting his back further. And then finally, at the very end of the match, he gets him up for a superplex. And, and he 
just had worn him down so much that it was just too much for him to stand. And and then after the match, uh, the two heels, Orton and Slater, did a major job on uh, Wahoo McDaniel and injured his arm. So uh, the heels are really looking good here. We've had uh, a heel win in, in, in every match so yeah, far. Yeah, so far it has been the heel, heel, or in this point, the heels going over. I mean, and Slater at this point was, in my opinion, at the level of an NWA champion. Had Ric Flair not been around, I think Dick Slater would have been a great NWA champion. I have argued over the years, now I understand why they didn't do it, but I was like, you know, they should have made Dick Slater the NWA champion instead of Harley Race uh, during this time frame. I thought Harley was kind of old. I, I felt like I'd seen enough of Harley Race as NWA champion. That's not a narc on race. It's just he had been NWA champ forever. And then, you know, they put it on him. And I now understand that, look, everyone knew who Harley Race was. You could bring Harley Race to Dallas. You could bring him to Florida, etc. And everyone knows his name. Dick Slater just didn't have that. Uh, that that's true, uh, it, you know. And again, to be an NWA champion, I think you really needed to have uh, some promoters behind you and really pushing you. Uh, and he wasn't the son of a promoter, and he didn't really have uh, Eddie Graham's, uh, you know, a hand on his shoulder giving him the anointment. Uh, so uh, they went with Harley Race. Instead. Yeah, and it, it makes sense. But like I said, I think they they could have ultimately put another guy over as hey, you know, former NWA champion Dick Slater, and kind of give him that. Bob Orton. Now, I don't think Bob Orton really could have held the NWA title, but he was one of the best wrestlers on the planet. He's even in the argument for the best. He was Bob Orton was so good before he went to the WWF, you know, a few months later and just, you know, kind of mailed it in every night or most nights, I should say. Well, he was just a phenomenal worker, and for him, it was just so easy. I mean, uh, it was just second nature to him to have a, a great match. But um, I, I did like I did like this match. I like the fact that they the heels won cleanly uh, just by kind of wearing their opponents down. Um, you know, and a funny thing about Orton too, I would say, you know, over the years he's kind of gotten the uh, uh, reputation that he wasn't a good interview. That he, uh, I guess, early in his career he had a stuttering yep. issue. But uh, he uh, he really uh, was interviewed a few times on this show, and he really came off strong. Is just a really like a uh, guy from the wrong side of the tracks, I guess, or a, a real legitimate tough guy, just like Slater was. And uh, I thought he was a very effective heel on this show. No, he he. I always liked his interviews, um, even when he didn't talk much when he was standing behind Roddy Piper. I thought he was fine on the stick, to be honest with you. I just didn't think he had the the physical charisma that you would need to be an, an NWA champion. He had everything else. Yeah, he he was very believable. He wasn't like a guy that would would make you buy a ticket, really, but a guy that you could really believe when you watched him work. No, exactly. He was, you know, a good piece in the puzzle. So, Steve, I've got to ask the question, or we've got to discuss this, right? We all know now that Vince McMahon had a meeting with Harley Race not long before this event, and Vince offered Race a substantial contract to jump to the WWF and miss this show, which I think would have been, you know, just kneecapping Jim Crockett promotions by, by not having Harley Race on. But let's say Race took McMahon's offer and, you know, McMahon takes care of the, the deposit on the belt. Harley's with the WWF. What do you do if you're JCP? 
Hmm. What do you do? <laughs> I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what I would have done as you think about what you might have done, okay? Okay. Dusty Rhodes is in the building. He's mm-hmm. right there, and every wrestler... Oh, this is something not everyone knows. Every wrestler always had his gear with him, just in case, okay? If you were a wrestler who was just starting out and, you know... Maybe you had a ticket to the event. You let someone in the back know, hey, if you need a guy for a substitute, I'm right here. I've got my stuff in the trunk. Um, and, Ra- you know, Rhodes certainly had his stuff. I would have just announced that Harley Race did not, you know, chose not to appear at, the, at this event. He has been stripped of the NWA title. And the number one contender is Ric Flair. The number two contender is Dusty Rhodes. We're going to have them wrestle here tonight and to declare a new NWA champion. Now, to me, now this is where I get complicated, right? (laughs) Okay. I put Dusty over in that scenario. I send those people home, like, you know, when their friends see him the next day, hey, you went to Starcade, what happened? You're going to have a crazy story. As opposed to, oh, Harley Race no-showed, but Dusty Rhodes took his place and Ric Flair won anyway. Now, I have had, I had a person tell me that's straight out of the Vince Russo uh, playbook. And he didn't mean that as a compliment, right? Everything he didn't like was, <laughs> was Vince Russo. But he's like, you know, you can't, it was built up as Ric Flair's night. And you couldn't send the people home unhappy. And I was like, well, wait a minute. If it's a legitimate sport, sometimes you don't get sent home happy. Yes, it's a good formula, but you can't do it every single time. And to me, you know, am I booking for the sake of shock booking, which I don't agree with? I kind of am because I'm backed up against the wall. I found out today that Harley Race isn't showing up. And having Flair against, you know, against just Dick Slater or Dusty Rhodes and having Rick go over, I think would have felt unfulfilling and flat. So that's what I would have done. I know some people thought it was kind of out there, but I think you need to do something, you know, okay, you just got hit with a curveball. You got a curveball back. Well, that's a great scenario that you're putting forward. I I mean, the only thing I would say uh, against that would be uh, in the story that they're trying to tell, they're trying to really put over the fact that Ric Flair was this guy that was uh, really abused and tortured by this triumvirate of race and and uh, uh, Slater and Orton. And betrayed. He was betrayed betrayed. by Bob Orton Jr. Yeah. But by, by like a, a period of what th- four months, five months, so this is kind of like walking tall. This is kind of like the guy coming in to get the final justice that he's been waiting for for such a long time. Now, if he was facing Dusty Rhodes, who's you know, already kind of considered a beloved babyface, he wouldn't really be fulfilling. Like, God, I, I beat the the baddest bad guy in town. I guess they could have put Greg Valentine in that main event since those two had a history together and Valentine was really hated in that territory. Or the only other thing I could think of, they could have maybe gone outside the territory and gotten just like for a one night only either Bruiser Brody or Stan Hansen. But would would, would either one of those guys want to do a job for uh, Flair on a big national show like this? I don't uh, know. They, they wouldn't, number one. It would hurt them in Japan. And <laughs> I mean, you know, really, I mean, uh, people, you know, yell at Brody and Hansen for being uh, selfish or whatever what you want to call it. But like they really were protecting their business in a place where they made money. There's a story. It's not a story. It happened. Bruiser Brody uh, was in Puerto Rico in 1988 before the thing happened with Jose Gonzalez. 
and he was wrestling against, uh, let me see, it was the Kendo Nagasaki and someone else who was just doing like, you know, a Kendo Nagasaki gimmick. And Bro- Brody saw that the Japanese press were there with photographs. He w- he wouldn't even let them give get an offensive maneuver in. He just went in there and dominated these guys because he didn't, you know, he knew that him selling for Kendo Nagasaki, or at least he thought it would really hurt him in Japan. So he he's not doing that. Plus, those two really aren't over as stars in the mid-Atlantic area the way either one would have needed to be to be in that that position right no i i agree with you on that um so the next major match that we have is is charlie brown from downtown against the great kabuki well let me see i mean every dusty Rhodes did the midnight rider in florida in 1983 okay very beginning of 83 lost the 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 loser leaves town match to kevin sullivan comes back as the midnight rider and it was a successful angle and now every promotion is trying to do their own midnight rider Uh, (laughs) mid-south has junkyard dog as stagger lee uh World class had Chris Adams as the Avenger for just one match, and now you know, like I said, everyone's got to have their their own uh, Stagger Lee slash uh, Midnight Rider, and now we've got you know Mid Atlantic with Charlie Brown, who uh, is obviously Jimmy Valiant. Uh, he's barely under a mask, <laughs> and you know it, it's all to make fun of the heels that the, the good guy got screwed, but he's fighting for justice in the end. And but but here's the problem, Steve. The world world is becoming a smaller place in 1983, believe it or not. And, you know, if you are enough of a fan to get the magazines, you're like, wait a minute, every promotion is doing this. This has never happened before, but now it's always happening. It makes no sense. Yeah, and, and when they finally did it with Hogan and Mr. America in, like, what, 2003 or 2004, it was, like, um, so... Um, it was just like a here we are with a wrestling trope, and uh, it was just ridiculous. But I forgot uh, about Mister R, Mister R, Tommy Rich, <laughs> Mister R. But this match was really over with the fans. I mean, they really enjoyed it. I mean, it, it, from the reaction from the crowd, this is one of the top matches of the night. If you just went by the crowd reaction, yeah, I, I will keep saying it. I mean, Jimmy Valiant was over in the Mid Atlantic area, and good for him. I mean, he. No one had quite reinvented themselves the way Jimmy Valiant goes d- did. He goes from you know handsome Jimmy Valiant or uh, King James Valiant when he first arrived <laughs> in the Mid Atlantic area, and now he's kind of doing the town drunk gimmick, and everyone's into it. No, a- absolutely. He was he was over huge there, and he would until the very end. I mean, like like you said earlier, uh, you listen to Bo James or any of the other experts about uh, those areas of the the South. He was extremely over. Whether it was uh, a big show like this or your little uh, two three thousand seat building, he would sell that out too. Yeah, he you know well, I don't, I don't think he would sell, he would I don't think he could main event a big building even in, in Charlotte by himself. But I mean, as part of the package he was great i just got done talking about how everyone you know stole this uh you know the the mass baby face who's been run out of town getting revenge thing kabuki must have been steamed he came up with that gimmick with gary hart and now we've got kendo nagasaki now we've got the ninja you know and and it all gets watered down and now kabuki's not over like he once was 
True, very true. And and I I was uh, looking at you know, ringside, and I was seeing this guy. Uh, I thought I thought that uh, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, was at ringside, <laughs> but it was really Bill After shooting photos. Oh my. Apparently, they look just alike. It's, it's amazing. I did not. I've never picked up on that. <laughs> then again, I really don't know what Berkowitz lo- looks like off the top of my head. <laughs> Um, and then they had another Dusty interview, which we don't have to get into. And, well, one thing I want to talk about this match real quick. I mean, I sure. was not expecting a classic, and to say that they delivered not a classic is an understatement. This was not a very good match. Oh, it, I, I would say it was a, definitely a dud on the Meltzer scale, but I mean, as far as the the, the pop they got and, and the way the fans were into every moment of the match, I guess they'd have to give them a couple of stars just on the crowd reaction. Yeah, I mean, the match itself was a dud, and, you know, the crowd reaction is what it was. I mean, and like I said, you go see Jimmy Valiant, you're, you're not expecting an, an Owen Hart level, you know, match. <laughs> you, you're getting what's advertised, so it's okay. That's true. Very true. All right, now the now it's time for the good stuff. That's right. Yeah, we we get a, a really uh, a huge increase in uh, in ring performance here. Uh, Roddy Piper against Greg Valentine in the dog collar match. You know, for next week's show, we're going to continue uh, talking about Starcade '83, and we are going to take questions from the uh, from the Facebook group, the pro the pro wrestling uh, excuse me, the Stick to Wrestling Facebook group. And one question I have, okay, and I've always wondered about this. Greg Valentine has Gary Royal and Bill Howard in his corner. And Gary Royal is in a tux. He looks like, you know, a nerdy kid going to to the prom. And he's giving Roddy Piper the stink face. And I'm like, <laughs> what is going on here? Like, do, do these guys have any, you know, any storyline in this? Why are they out there? And, and then I noticed <laughs> that, you know, uh, Roddy Piper has Brickhouse Brown and Vinny Valentino in his corner. So, I mean, was this just like a random thing with the with Gary Royal wearing a tux and whatever? Or, you know, maybe uh, Todd Gossel know this. I'll, but I'll be the one asking a question. I want to know what's going on here. Well, well, that Gary Royal, who you're referring to, uh, for a minute, I thought it was, um, uh, <laughs> who's that guy that, that uh, I think his name was uh, Spivey, the guy that uh, was giving uh, Paul Orndorff encouragement about 10 years oh, later. Oh, God. Uh, you know that guy? I do know that guy. Those were some of, WCW had some bad segments, but this was this yeah. one topped them all. They looked a lot alike. Gary I, I, Spivey. I've seen them. Gary Spivey looked exactly like the guy you're talking about. Okay, I, I didn't recognize that, but I did have to look, and I was like, who is that? Like, I, I kind of immediately recognized Gary Royal, but it took me you know, a couple of times with Bill Howard, and I'm just like, okay, yeah. why are these unknowns in the ring, and then they're outside the ring during this match? So I, I my curiosity is overwhelming me. Todd Goss, uh, uh, we need your information. Stat. Yeah, well, well, we'll get that out there. Don't worry about it. This match was crazy. I used to be, you know, people would say this was a great match, and I would always be like, no, nah, it was a good match. I'm now leaning towards great, a great match. Uh, this match was incredible. They had that, re- you know, I've seen chain matches before. But not like this. They had this really heavy loggers chain, and they had it. You know, they were connected at the neck. The, you know, the usually the chain matches you have the, the the strap around your wrist. These guys had these giant straps around their neck, 
and this match just reeked of danger, Steve. This was crazy. Yeah, I would say that this was was a, a phenomenal match. Uh, very brutal, very believable. I would put it in the same realm of matches, that famous Bret Hart against Stone Cold match, the one that kind of uh, turned Stone Cold into uh, a hero. I mean, it just, uh, it was so believable. And you see all that blood on the mat and the blood on each other and the different poses that they had, like when Piper wrapped the uh, chain around Valentine's mouth. I mean, it just looked so incredibly real to me. While I was looking uh, for a uh, a picture to have when this show goes on, I, I noticed that someone on eBay was selling a, a figure set of Greg Valentine and Roddy Piper, you know, all bloodied up, and, and they have the loggers chain, and the, the thing is $70 plus shipping, so I just gave this guy a hell of a plug, and I'm just like, there's no way this is licensed merchandise. None. <laughs> But it was it was just really uh, super believable, and uh, even after the match, when when Piper won, uh, Valentine gets him and basically hangs him on the apron, and and you, you just really worried about these guys, and 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 I think Gordon Sully did a really good job in the match. He was really uh, putting forth the idea that Piper's ear was already severely injured coming into the match, and when they did that spot where uh, there's all this blood coming out of Piper's ear, they really sold the fact that his equilibrium has been compromised and Piper's having a really tough time and uh, you know, P- the fans really got behind Piper and they were really happy when he won. Uh, Valentine uh, looked so much like his father at certain points of this match and I think like his father, I think he was just kind of a that freaky person that didn't mind taking tons of abuse and tons of pain. He just seemed uh, impervious after a while. He did, you know, and, and you're right. Sometimes Greg Valentine, you know, he's got that reputation as a guy who, you know, takes a while to get going in a match. And, uh, but mm-hmm. like I said, I, I came away from this match liking it more than I ever had. And the match that reminded me of the most hadn't taken place yet. It was Magnum TA against Tully Blanchard in the I Quit match. Like, you know, you're just yeah. like, oh, man, this is, you know, for my pro wrestling standards, this is just brutal. These two are killing each other. And I, I want to put also uh, put over the referee, uh, Stu Schwartz from Florida. Uh, Barry Rose has mentioned him before, uh, what a great referee he was. And uh, he was on a few matches in this card, and I thought he did a really, really good job. I'll tell you what, I didn't notice Stu Schwartz, which means he did a fantastic job. I'm a big believer <laughs> right. in that. Like in you know the in baseball, the best umpire is the one you don't even notice, and the best referees are the ones you don't even notice. Now, I need to let everyone know that we are on uh, this one week. Really, we're on a. a extreme time constraint so we're going to keep it as close to 60 minutes as we can uh steve before now we'll wrap up we'll talk about the the last two matches on starcade 83 next week uh we will take questions from the stick to wrestling universe and then i am confident that i'm going to have a a review purposes only uh segment next week we're looking forward to that but steve the wrestling observer hall of fame has come out and I learned uh, a few days ago that Sergeant Slaughter is now a member of the uh, the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. So good for Sergeant Slaughter. <clears throat> what are your thoughts on that? I, I think it's I think it's long overdue. I mean, I, in my in my mind, the reason why it took so long was that a lot of the voters 
were penalizing him for his down years, like uh, 85, 86, 87, up until the beginning of his WWF return. I guess they were holding all that against him. But, uh, you know, you've you've done a great job extolling his virtues, talking about the great, great run he had uh, in New York, uh, solid worker in the AWA before that, great work in the Carolinas after that, great work in New York in 84. Um, you know, uh, to me, he, to me, he's a no-brainer. I know uh, Jake Hammer is a big fan of his, and he's happy too. Uh, and the Briscoes got in as a tag team, which you know we were about to get into their match, and we can talk about that next week. But uh, I think Jack and Jerry Briscoe definitely d- deserve to be in, and and I guess if they're in, the Funk should be in too. I don't know if they're in together, but we know they're both in a singles. So uh, I see. I am the ultimate party pooper, Steve. When it comes to Hall of Fame. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't have any objection to Sergeant Slaughter being in the Hall of Fame. If someone wanted to vote for him, I'd be like, yeah, I could see that. You know, like, and, there, and I don't say that about everybody. Uh, name off the top of my head, Bob Orton Jr., as much as I like him, he's not a Hall of Famer. Uh, Slaughter, he's someone that I would not vote for, but... I don't. I don't hate the idea. Um, I mean, I thought you know, Steve. You you called it holding it against him. I call it like you know, it's just part of the evaluation. Sergeant Slaughter, the character was born, as far as I know, uh, August nineteen eighty, and then it kind of went bye bye in I want to say early nineteen eighty five when he his appearances became so sporadic with the AWA, and then finally he had the big comeback in the WWF in nineteen eighty one. But even that whole thing only lasted a couple of years. And longevity is a thing. And I'm happy for Sergeant Slaughter. He he follows me on Twitter. At least he used to before my Twitter account got all screwed up. And so, you know, he's a really good guy. He seems and he's put on great matches. I mean, I, I told him on Twitter one day, you know, the first major wrestling event. I attended, uh, you had the Pat Patterson versus Sergeant Slaughter alley fight, and I told him, you know, the truth, he spoiled me. I thought every show was going to have a <laughs> killer match like that, and no, that's something you get maybe once a year. Well, I think, though, in, in recent years, people like Brian Last have, have wisely pointed out, you have wrestlers like Tiger Mask, who didn't have, like, a great body of work. I mean, for, I'm not talking, talking about, like, you know, 10, 12 years. He didn't have a career like that. But you have wrestlers that had these short, but really impactful spurts, uh, four or five years. And that's why a lot of people want to see JYD in, because for those short, uh, however long it was with JYD, maybe four or five years, it was so impactful, it was so huge, that even if he underperformed the rest of the way, he still deserves to be in. So there's a lot a lot of stuff that we can debate on, a lot, lot to chew on with that. Yeah, the Briscoes as a tag team, I just don't see it. I mean, Jack Briscoe as a single is a no-brainer. Nothing against Jerry Briscoe, but as a single, he's not even close. He's not even the next step down. I, I, I mean, I don't have a favorite Jack and Jerry Briscoe memory aside from the the time that they were stuck in a snowstorm in Hartford and Jack just gets <laughs> up and changes his ticket to Tampa and goes home and is never heard from again. That, that's like my favorite Briscoe's tag team story. I guess my next one down is them winning the non-title match against Adonis and Murdoch on TV. And I, I literally don't have any other memories of the Briscoes as a tag team. So I totally don't don't get that one. I get Slaughter, but I don't get the Briscoes as, as a team. 
Well, I think throughout the 70s, though, they had these ongoing feuds or series of matches with the Funks, and they were, they were legendary, you know, really renowned matches. But, I mean, I will say this to your in your defense. I think that the uh, the British Bulldogs should be in the Hall of Fame well before the Briscoes. Uh, I mean, you could say that maybe they didn't have enough years together, but they the years that they were together were hugely impactful. So I, I mean, I, I can think of a lot of tag teams. I would put in before the Briscoes. I would put in Bruiser Brody and and Stan Hansen. I would put in the Andersons, Ole and Gene before the Briscoes. So this is one that I just don't get. Like I said, I get Sergeant Slaughter. I'm happy for the guy. I can. I I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't have ultimately voted for him had I, if I had a vote, but I can see someone voting for that for him. I, I just can't see the Briscoes. Yeah, they were a great tag team, but they were so part time that you know what are you doing? Yeah, well, I, I respect that opinion. <laughs> and on that happy note, I want to thank everyone <laughs> for listening to Stick to Wrestling. Um, thank you. For, I want to thank Brian Last for giving us this forum. I want to thank everyone for listening. It means a lot to me. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great hard work he does. He's at a library right now recording Stick to Wrestling. That's how dedicated he is to this. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vol! this week he didn't last week this concludes our podcast day